Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as when will we learn more about this mysterious chancellor? How long will this goblin fire thing stick to cat? And Demon Demon on the Wall, who's the fairest of them all? The Dooney, I think? Who reigns up high? A dead man's sigh. What sleeps below? A crown of woe. That is the tower. Learn and cower. Extract from And So I Dreamt I Was Awake, Scheherazade the seer. So we get our introduction to the tower in this chapter. It's been talked about a bit before. It will continue to be talked about for the next decade or so. It is the central building of praise. It's an institution. It's a symbol. It's the tower. And we learn that the tower is unsurprisingly filled with all sorts of horrors meant to protect it and to create this image. And this chapter, more or less, is Kat's introduction to the building itself. Uh, we get a little discussion with Black back and forth about some of the history of the tower here, which is really interesting. But mostly we're just exposed to how awful this place is. And that's what this chapter is. And it's a lot of fun for that. The awfulness in this chapter isn't just the tower alone, because remember, this is the Dread Empire. The tower is a distillation of that cartoon, horrible evil. No, I retract that. The tower is a distillation of the horrors of the empire, much as the high lords and ladies are the distillation of the cartoon evil. But praise is praise, no matter what. I realize Catherine thinks she's funny, but I trust her words when she starts the chapter by saying she'd been, quote, politely abducted by the blackguards, which is doubly amusing because Nock and Ratface were apparently present, and she'd been working on keeping a level of low profile beforehand, even if Juniper saw through it, but Black just chooses not to play that game, not to let Catherine play that game. There... There's some miscommunication between Black and Cat, I think, about what's exactly going on <laughs> with the war games, which 
I have to be clear, I think is intentional on Black's part because obviously Scribe knows everything going on. And uh, I think here, yeah, he's just not really concerned about what Kat's going on. Whatever he's doing, which we'll find out soon, is obviously more important than Captain Callow's secret identity. Just a, a real tragedy to see that so soon into their relationship, Catherine gets stabbed in the back. That is a tragedy. Fortunately, betrayal isn't really a part of this series much because it's really hard to read. So we never have to deal with Cat suffering through the betrayal of those closest to her again. I'm sorry, I misspoke. I said never. I meant always, every chapter for the rest of the series. Okay, I was really rapidly rereading the entire series to make sure that I wasn't confused. I thought maybe I missed a knot at one point. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, easy mistake to make. I stabbed my own father and watched him die. I stabbed my own father and watched him die. Not! <laughs> it, it's a joke. That would be a pretty good prank on the steps of the tower. But Catherine and Black aren't the only two doing some uh, love stabs. Yeah, there's... Black approaches Court wearing armor, which Cat comments on. Because, you know, that's worth commenting on. Armor isn't normally what you wear to Court, I guess, unless you are named the Black Knight. And Black says, Pracy Nobility has a regrettable propensity for stabbing. First of all, this is Cat and Amadeus talking to each other. They both do a lot of stabbing. Cat especially. Between the two of them, there are multiple stabs back and forth. It's... <laughs> they, neither of them is big on nobility, but trying to say stabbing is the problem or a problem with the nobility is definitely a bit of a stretch for these two. Also, I think next chapter, based on how certain things shake out, it feels as though stabbing probably isn't the main way that the nobles would deal with each other in public, since Kat does a physical violence to somebody and everybody acts like it was the biggest faux pas. Yes, because Catherine didn't stab. She is an uncouth Callowan who doesn't know whether she's using her salad knife or her kidney knife for stabbing someone. Mm, that makes sense. All right. It was, it's a... It's a method, not a result issue. A method and a madness. She doesn't have the same uh, cartoon instability either. Which, not a conversation I'm looking to open here. I don't think it's the appropriate placement. But I will be curious about people's thoughts on the appropriateness of storylines about madness when in such a trope-sensitive work as this, as opposed to more pernicious examples in for example, classical Call of Cthulhu campaigns. But that is neither here nor there. What is here is perhaps a touch of the hypocrisy? Perhaps a touch. Captain agrees with Black when he says they have a regrettable propensity for stabbing. He should talk. And Captain says, and poisoning, and blood magic. Calling the tower a snake pit is doing a disservice to snakes. They don't usually bite unless provoked. I recognize that they all hate Pracy nobility as all people should all beings should but using the tower as metonymy for the governing class feels a little less than ideal considering that the only person who properly holds the tower is a woman that you very deliberately sought to install crazy nobles bad sure but i'm pretty sure you and ali are enough intents and purposes on the same page yeah i mean we we do get that the court and the nobility hang out in the tower of course but 
the tower seems like just a bad choice <laughs> honestly but the tower is i mean the phrasing we get all the time the the phrases we get about climbing the tower who sits atop the tower the tower is the seat of the dread empress it, it's not where all the government is and also the head of state is there it's where the tyrant is and everybody comes to them so yeah i i think i think it is i think you're right that uh that division between us and them here is a little blurred in the way they're talking about it especially since to be the dread empress requires that you are crazy nobility but better and i don't mean better morally better morally but definitely way more metal morally this might be your worst segue yet i'm just gonna throw that out there thank you (laughs) which i really approve of and speaking of metal things uh cat gets a new sword because you know maybe had an accident with her previous one and it's another goblin steel sword because of course it is she's named she deserves the best and this one has on its pommel stylized version of green flames it's uh very cool like you know she's got this great personalized sword and all of that but it definitely is she did it one time okay one time and so far to be clear and we're gonna call her out on that and also it wasn't actually her but you know what i respect it i choose to believe there's some level of foresight in this by black or scribe or whoever chose that specific stylization they know who cat is I think this works. It's it's just a very cool thing on the sword. You don't think it's merely crass mockery? I mean, I think it's probably mockery. It's not as crass as murder, though, even if it is a little crass. Because apparently, making a move at court is expected, but outright assassination, it's not bad, it's not wrong, it's not illegal, it's not uncomfortable. It's just crass. It's just not... It's not done. The Precy are just a special breed. But... The breed that they are is interestingly addressed here. Catherine is not put up to be some impartial, morally righteous, unquestionable protagonist. Catherine is as deeply flawed as the world she lives in. But she is in a position of deep-seated hate. She despises praise with all her being. She is Callowin. And from that position, it would be reasonable to expect to see that she would have awful and generalized opinions about the people who make up praise. But she shows a remarkable grasp of the nuances of the Dread Empire by saying, culturally speaking, Otter might have been more Soninke than Tagreb, but the capital of the Dread Empire had developed into something that was entirely different from both. Otter was the touchstone of praise, and at court, murder was considered as much of an art as sculpting or painting. Lack of elegance in the death was more of a sin than the killing itself. She says the Dread Empire itself might be made of Soninke and Tagreb, more Soninke than Tagreb, but it's neither of them. She can condemn the Empire, or rather this puts her in position to condemn the Empire without condemning the people groups, which I'm not sure she's intending to do here, but she's going to be able to from that position. And it's something we as socially conscious modern readers ensconced in western progressivisms i think might be able to be pleasantly surprised to see yeah i think i think cat's point is definitely 
maybe slightly leaning in that direction, but is definitely more about the, you know, just the general culture of Trace being bad, whoever happens to be there. It, oh, it, sure. it, it seems more an apathy towards understanding other cultures rather than an intentional step towards the ruling class is bad and the people who make it up aren't necessarily. But to recognize the difference, mm -hmm. even as a relatively educated person, is impressive considering how many Americans I'm aware of who would, say, condemn Chinese people because China is, in their view, bad. Oh, sure. And that Catherine's not outright doing that. Good job. You go, girl. Yeah, she's... I think there's probably a lot of Kalowans who are in that same boat, and I think it's probably Kat's a... I mean, Kat's a pretty unique individual, and also, at this point, has a little bit of the... a little bit of learning from Black, who, frankly, probably doesn't see race. But he does see differently. And I do want to note one other thing about the section I read. The last line of that was, lack of elegance in the death was more of a sin than the killing itself. And this is notable considering our recent awareness of sin. One sin. Black's practicality has a fascinating juxtaposition with Price's extraordinarily contrived, extraordinarily refined, and extraordinarily ritualized wickedness. One sin for Black is loss. Nothing else matters at that level. In Price, the sin isn't failing to secure your victory. The sin is a the sin is in securing the wrong kind of victory. And Black took the tower. Take that. I think that's, I think that's a good juxtaposition to notice, uh, because obviously it's intentional. Black sets himself as the enemy of the nobles frequently, pretty much constantly. And so that's a, that's a great distinction where you've got what is important, what's the most important thing, what in combat, in death, what matters on either side of it, one sin versus being gauche and I, I one thing that i thought of just now was relating that back to this specific passage back to when cat was first being trained by black like day one she says something about learning swordsmanship and black basically says no i'm going to teach you how to kill people this is uh, I, another example of this very direct the nobles are concerned with how somebody dies and black saying as long as they're dead you've won that's what matters so there's a nice uh, a nice through line here of Black and the nobles being on opposite ends of this particular issue. It's interesting. I agree. And this is not contesting even your wording. But I think it is valuable to note Black does care about more than simply the opponent ending up dead. He does also need them to be dead in the right way because he's constantly aware of the story that he's setting up. But that isn't a complication to his viewpoint, it's just a not in how he can iron it out. Goals are the same, but I don't want to fail to acknowledge the depths of machinations to which he must go to achieve those ends. Sure. I, I guess what I mean is, if the end goal is somebody being dead, Black takes the direct route to the death, but rarely is a specific person being dead the single end goal of any of Black's plots. You are correct. That. That's usually a step towards something larger, you know, like hanging someone to make your apprentice cry, for in, for example. I mean, making a little girl cry, there's a story in there. And much like little girls crying, there is a story in 
the history of a particular name that gets brought up here. We learn a little bit about the Chancellor, the second in command of Prace, ostensibly. But there is an interesting bit of history dropped here that Militia outlawed Chancellor. It's a a name, a story that she said, nope, that isn't allowed to be happen anymore. People in Prace cannot follow the steps to achieve this name. This mantle cannot be here anymore. There's a couple things here. First of all, it's fascinating that apparently you can just do that if you're the Dread Empress. You can say, no, this name isn't allowed. And I understand that the Chancellor is tied up into the government, and so you could just not have the position, and so the name wouldn't happen. Sure. There's more to it than just outlawing a name. But at the same time, with the weight that names have, with the the power that mantles hold in this setting, that she can just say no thanks to one of them. Very interesting. Also, Kat says, it seems like there's a story there to the idea of a name being outlawed. Hey, Kat? Yeah? <laughs> like, of course there's a story. This is, again, interesting. You don't really hear of names being outlawed, except in the abstract sense of names are kind of outlawed in Callow right now, I guess. But yeah, there's a story there. I'm sure it's a really interesting one. And obviously, the base level reason is a pretty simple one. The Chancellor betrays the Dread Empress all the time. What? Yeah, I know. Classic. But, you know, the details about how she went around doing that and how she went about doing that and what that entails in practice, yeah, it's very interesting. What gets me about Chancellor, and I'm moving books ahead to have this conversation, but it's directly relevant, and if you don't like it, you should comment and increase our engagement on all our platforms. But Militia does not have a chancellor, but she totally has someone in that kind of position. A spy mistress, but a right-hand girl, a dear friend, a will-they-or-won't-they going on, you know? I wonder if Ime ever risked coming near to a path where chancellorship might try to reassert itself through her. That's possible, yeah. I hadn't really drawn that connection before. That is curious that she has the governmental side of that role filled without the role being there. Maybe it is just as simple as her saying the name Chancellor is outlawed and then she can have one without it counting. (laughs) Hard to say. Ime is kind of a second Hasenbach in being a mortal who runs the affairs of an empire or of a great state and yet denies or is denied a name. But I move us far from our current... Well, I move us far from our current chapter, and not very far at all from our current location. You see, our heroes... That is a terrible phrasing. You see, our protagonists come to the foot of the tower, an impressive building, which is a hulking spire of dark stone that jutted out into the perpetual storm clouds. They have to pass through the Gate of Bones, and Catherine sees the tall arches in the stone that serve as windows, the hundreds of balconies that spring from them. Stories do not do the tower justice. And according to the legionaries, emperors rise, emperors fall, but the tower endures. And there are, apparently, two exceptions. Kind of. Twice the tower has been cast down, and twice it has been rebuilt. But the first time was... Dread Empress Triumphant. May she never return. Thank you. Who cast down the tower as a last act of spite, 
not to accomplish anything in particular, but because she was spiteful. And you know what? All I have to say to that is good for her. Heroes just hate to see a woman succeeding. That's truly what it is. But it was also cast down a second time. And frankly, by a very surprising hand, at least to me, the tower was successfully cast down by a Prosseran army during the Second Crusade. And the idea of a crusade succeeding? Okay, possible, sure. It's happened in history. It's happened in this series, whatever. But to cast down the tower? And it's a Prosseran army, not even a coalition, just, oh, you know, the princes got together, decided to jaunt across Callow and make war on the tower and win. Beating praise, whatever, I don't care. But beating the accumulated horrors of the tower? What is this story? E.E., my close personal friend who listens to this podcast every week when it comes out, please tell me the story during our next sit-down dinner. It is astounding. And, uh, you you know, the collection of heroes that were there must have been off the charts so far. But, yeah, I mean, we, we hear about Crusades doing well, but to reach to reach the tower and to cast it down, I'm I'm very interested. That's That's something special because... We're about to dive into what actually makes the tower the tower here for the rest of this chapter, more or less. And it is, it's something, uh, something, it's pretty impressive. Terrifying, horrifying, but impressive. That which is impressive, but horrifying. They reach the gate. And these gates are as hulking as the rest of this madman's nightmare. Smooth obsidian, marred by the thousands of runes and symbols carved into it. I realize that here marred just means not entirely smooth anymore. But marred is a value statement, and Catherine, these are runes and symbols carved into it. This is on point, this is aesthetic, that is not marring, it is completed. Words have connotative meanings, and you need to consider them before using them. I mean, considering this next sentence, she very well may have done that intentionally. It strikes me that the magic used in this tower, it probably isn't the purest of magic in the sense of it not in the sense of like it's only magic but in the sense of its purpose probably pretty twisted you get some some evil just vibes in everything that's going on here and cat as we've talked about before and we'll continue to talk about experiences magic she senses magic in very physical ways and so to her it may feel like marring because the nature of the power therein is bad <laughs> it feels bad looks bad but when she sees the gates she, as she gets close to them she can feel a dull thrum coming from them age-old sorcery permeating the very air around it and we've had her almost smell magic or taste magic and feel it in different ways and this has a thrum that she feels which definitely has like a physical pressure component but it also reads like a sound as well and it's uh, something that is air the kind of thing that i just am so interested in you know we've talked about a little bit before but the how magic physically interacts with the world not you know how spells do but how magic itself and how a cat interacts with that specifically and this one is very dense and real in a way that we often we don't often get which makes sense we're at the tower there's probably a lot of concentrated magic here but filling the air in such a way that she can almost hear it is uh, it's uh, a little a little scary. 
And the whole process is scary because the source of that magic is going to turn out to be nasty. We'll get there. But what's also nasty is the red tape and all the work it takes to just go say hi to your bestie in the case of Black. He, the person with the most right in the tower besides Allie herself, walks up and has to go through all the ritual. I admit it could be for show, but I don't think so because it's a demon. Uh, I have come summoned by the tyrant, Black called out into the silence. Gatekeeper, grant me entrance. That's just so much effort. It is a lot of effort. And there are hundreds of nobles at the party that they're going to, or the court. Yeah, it's a party that we'll get to in the next chapter. Did all, I don't remember. I feel like the number was something like 400, or maybe it was 400 eyes. Did all couple hundred people have to line up at the gate and take turns saying, I come summoned by the tyrant, gatekeeper grant me entrance, and then the demon mocks them a little bit? Because that's intense, and I really respect that theater. That The in- line stretching out. Right. Just- the- <laughs> exactly. And if you get there and you forgot something and have to run home and you have to come back and do it, it's a mess. And that that level of enforced theater, it's a power move, and it's a good one. But it's one that demands respect. And frankly, Catherine doesn't know the meaning of the word. A demon's face appears. Not that she knows it to be a demon, but she has felt it to be a demon. It says, the prodigal knight returns, and with an apprentice in tow. And her response is immediately, gods, tell me that thing isn't going to ask us to solve a riddle. Catherine, first, you're going to actually have people ask to solve a riddle while you're in a tower a little later. You are in no position to judge, though you know not that yet. But also, where's your self-preservation? This is the tower. You grew up on horror stories about it. You came and everything was confirmed at sight. Do you want to die? You mentioned self-preservation. Kat realizes that a moment later. She says, I really needed to get a handle on the mouthing off in the face of fear thing. Uh, you know, I really, we really try to stay away from spoilers in this podcast. We don't. But spoiler alert, Kat, you're not going to get a handle on that. Ever. <laughs> it doesn't go away. Your self-preservation gauge is really, really bad when it comes to saying the wrong thing. And, uh... Yeah, that's definitely true here. I Mouthing off to the gate face of the tower is a rough one. There is no indication of it. Not one. But I wonder if Catherine's the first squire brought back to Prace simply because. In response to this, Gateface says, Even now you bring me the most interesting strays. I grant you entrance, Black Knight. Who's Black been bringing back to the tower? Ranger? I thought it right as you said it. Okay. Maybe... I mean, Eudokia isn't Pracy either. I'm not sure the gate is aware that Eudokia has gone through. I know it's a demon. Uh, yeah, but... that's borderline. <laughs> Catherine certainly doesn't see the scribe in their party, and uh, next chapter she'll see scribe at the party, so... That's maybe? true. Or maybe scribe and militia were just up there before the party, chatting, having a girls' night. Yeah, that's true. Scribe and the Dread Empress are famously best of friends. Scribe and the Dread Empress are two people whom I would trust fully and completely to work perfectly well with each other, so long as they both chose to. Oh, for sure. They're consummate professionals. That's Black. We rarely see him lose his cool. When they make it through the gate, however, he immediately turns to Cat and furiously whispers, don't ever do that again. It's not often you get a genuine 
expression of emotion from Black in a way that feels like it wasn't just, I'm going to put on this mask now to make a point. He's actually, I think this, this feels like an actual response from him, which, fair enough, considering his next line, uh, Kat says, oh, let us through, what's the big deal, basically? And he says, the gatekeeper ate the soul of the last person who spoke out of turn to it. Not even Warlock could have brought you back had it taken offense. So first of all, Kat's got some major protagonist armor again. She rolls up and uh, does the thing you're not supposed to do and still gets let in. Great. She is the protagonist in a story like this. That's not just a something you overlook. It just adds to how the story works. So it's all good. But also, wow, this gate is something else. When you, I mean, your first approach, you're, you know, the first time you come to court, if you're not properly briefed or if you're nervous so you make a mistake, you just get your soul eaten. The tower is not a place to mess around with. You say if you're not properly briefed, and I do have to note, Black should have properly briefed her. Oh, yes, absolutely. This is really on Black and Cat, but mostly Black. Like it's on Cat, but Black should know she's the worst. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you, you know, if you bring a person who doesn't know the rules somewhere and they break the rules eh, they probably it's your fault if the rules are super obvious and they still break them it's still your fault but you know there's you can shift blame back and forth however you'd like really they both goofed up here especially since we find out in the next line that yep the gatekeeper is a demon which is i believe the first time demons show up in the text both on screen and even being mentioned, they uh, they are horrifying and neat to read about. And uh, this one is just, you know, stuck in the gate and sometimes eats souls. Who among us is not? Amen. No, the answer is all, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I guess I have never eaten a soul that I know of. All right. Now, Black not offering warning here was foolish and foolhardy. But there's much funnier stuff he doesn't offer a warning about. They walk into a high-ceilinged room of cold black stone, bare of any tapestry. The only thing that wasn't polished marble around was a series of mosaics on the walls, strangely patterned in a hundred subtle shades of red and gray. I frowned as we got past one by, slowing to take a closer look. A large hand came to rest on my shoulder almost immediately, gently pushing Don't captain murmured her tanned face expressionless if you manage to see the eyes you'll be speaking in tongues for weeks i love this place the tower is great you've got these demons that eat your soul you've got death traps you've got monsters for elevators and you also have mosaic prank prank hmm. you also have prank mosaics that if you look at them wrong you can't talk right for a while <laughs> frankly this place is beginning to remind me of Generic tabletop RPG's most famous adventure, The Tomb of Horrors. Uh, first edition written by Gary Gygax. It is a blast. In its original playthrough, I believe two parties in the convention made it to the first room. It does have that vibe. And given some details, and I don't want to specify which, in case any of our dear listeners end up diving into this in the future, and, you know, it's best to do so blind... There are some details in here that feel like maybe it was a specific inspiration and rather than just, you know, being another example. So it really does. You know, that's pretty huh. cool. 
Ah. After they make it through the prank-filled mosaic room, they come to a new room, or hallway, I believe, and Black warns Cat about this one, which is nice. But the warning is odd because this room seems less immediately lethal than anything we've seen so far, or long, you know, fewer long-term effects at least. It's a corridor filled with human heads that are hanging from the ceiling by ropes, which are kept close to the walls so that they formed a curtain of mutilated flesh covering the entire span of the stone. And then the, the when they step in, every head turns to face the group. A thousand mouths opened, and they started moaning and yelling and begging, words spoken in half a dozen different tongues, drowning each other out into incoherence until all that could be heard was one deafening scream of despair and hatred. As Kat enters and flinches at this, some are laughing, leering, and talking to her specifically. They are just horrifying. And Kat, in a moment of panic, screams enough. Notably, for those of you who are not actively reading along, enough is bolded here. Kat is speaking. And we get a, a description of speaking from the speaker for the first time, which I think is worth looking at here. Uh, Kat says, For the span of a single breath, my name filled the room. The power that surged through my veins winked out of existence as swiftly as it had appeared. But in its wake, silence reigned. I felt the weight of a thousand stares on me, but I was too angry to care. And Black is impressed by this. He says, You've picked up on speaking after seeing me use it only once. A decent effort for a beginner. And it's cool. We get this horrifying corridor. Cat deals with it. But we also get this moment where it's it might be worth looking into a little bit and seeing where Kat's speaking goes in the future because is this is her decent effort just Catherine is a willful individual. She's focused and is intensely desirous of enforcing her will on what's going on around her. Is this you know, uh warden foreshadowing? Is this she's the protagonist? is this just because she spends so much time around black? Uh, I, I don't know. There's, there's some, uh, maybe something interesting to tease out of the fact that she is good at speaking now before she's even in the fullness of her transition name. There is, however, something interesting in Black's claim here. Black says, you've picked up speaking after seeing me use it only the once. I'm not saying Black's statement is accurate and that Black is inerrant, but this flies in the face of a theory you had in Chapter 3, Party. When they enter the feast at the Governor's Palace, Black says, out, all of you. Not bolded, no indications, but after all of the nobles flee, but for mazes, Catherine says, so it's a name thing, the way you mess with people's heads. I'm used. Seems like a useful trick. The green-eyed man shot me an amused look. A fairly basic use of my power, he replied, looking over the fleeing throng. But I won't deny it can be entertaining on occasion. And you said that was likely speaking. The textual indications are that it's likely speaking. But Black speaks to Catherine later, at the hanging. Explain me that thing. That That's true. That is interesting. I wonder if he means you've, after seeing me use it, means seeing him use it without it affecting her? Because I have a feeling your perceptions are not perfectly tuned to piecing together the details of speaking if you're being spoken to. Or 
It could be that that first one wasn't speaking and was instead some other level of manipulation that the Black Knight is capable of. That I don't know. The scary man with the sword who was famous for killing the people with that sword told me to go. That The name power there is just Historia is strong and I'm afraid of him. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I was under the impression that's basically what speaking is. That you are... No, right? Your story is so strong. It's it's like how uh, when Cat encounters Ranger and Ranger wants Cat dead badly enough that Cat almost just dies on the spot. That feels like that's what speaking is. That your story is strong enough. What you want is strong enough that the things that would benefit your story almost just happen when you tell them to happen. So I I don't I don't know. There's I'm not sure what the distinction there is and what exactly happened in that party. We do know what happened to all these heads yeah they're not just a random collection of heads that the dread emperors and empresses have found over the years although that would also be not be the most unbelievable right exactly (laughs) but rather they are specifically the people who have tried to gain the crown to climb the tower and failed there's a lot of them in here notably and also what a powerful move to just have necromantically preserved all of the people who have tried to get where you are and failed to show how singular you are tower at this moment and also to, you know, cow everybody who's trying to get in behind you. How powerful is the necromancy? Because the necromancy keeping the heads alive goes back to the declaration, Black Muse. No one's been able to reproduce it since and not for lack of trying. It's a powerful ancient necromancy, but way cooler to me. It goes back to the declaration, which... I might remind you, is two towers ago. Dude, it outlasted the tower twice. So the tower... After, Good. After Cat cuts the tower down for the last time, will people go to the ever-burning goblin fire and just see heads start screaming if they put them there? I'm, I'm wondering if the tower's collapsed and in the rubble somewhere were just a few hundred heads lying around screaming. <laughs> I hope so. Regardless, however this works, it's great. Like, there's no oh, wrong you, answer. You mean a few ancient decapitated heads? Because I'm sure that whoever was forced to actually rebuild the thing had Fair. a screaming head on their body. That's true. Uh, yeah, a little more specificity was needed. So we're introduced to ancient necromancies. We're introduced to the concept of demons. And then we're introduced to the concept of devils, which are apparently distinct from demons and have something going on with the number 24. They're media on the 24th floor, which I guess would be like media on the 13th floor. Or the 666th floor. Though I don't believe even the Burj Khalifa has that many floors. It probably has 666 rooms or more. It has 163 floors. Oh, is that all? Did you have a follow-up? Are you reading about the tower right now? Apparently, according to the earliest results on Google, the Burj Khalifa has 304 hotel rooms, 900 apartments, and in an act of stunning abomination... 2,957 parking spaces. Cars are a sin. Build dense cities with public transit. I mean, in theory, a tall tower like this would be a dense city, but uh, yeah. Great. If it's a dense city in one place, even better for public transit. One sin, R1 zoning. One grace, public transit. (laughs) Black also knows better about something specific here. We we get a, a, a bit of discussion about summoning and dealing with devils and Pat is says something about uh, doesn't it bother you that they used to summon hellspawn uh it seems things are going bad if there's literal deal with the devil 
And Black's response, I think, is really important. It, or maybe not important. It's very enlightening. It tells you a lot about Black. He says, borrowed power always betrays its user in the end. I might gain the one... It might gain the one making the deal some short-term victories, but it inevitably turns into a death sentence down the line. It's as good a way as any to weed out the more foolish elements of the aristocracy. And this is just what Black is all about. He knows how these things work. He's very familiar with them. He understands the ins and outs. He lets them run their course. He doesn't fall prey to the easy solutions that aren't going to work, but he lets other people fall into those traps to further his own goals there's there's a level of pragmatism here and a level of mm, distant a level of distant almost aerial view planning that goes into who black is as a person and we just we see that all kind of condensed into this this spot he's not cat is oh you know uh, they they summon devils isn't that a sign of bad things because devils and black doesn't even bother trying to comment on oh yes the devils are dangerous and villainous obviously for that last word but just immediately responds with well yeah it is a bad idea because it's impractical in the long term so i let it happen for that reason it's just an interesting peek into who black is and i I just really enjoy this whatever two sentence three sentence response he gives to cat because it how much information about black we get from it or how much information we've seen that that this confirms or reinforces. Catherine is still practical in her objections. A lot of people would continue being baffled by and fighting against the concept of summoning demons, which are pardon would be baffled by and would fight against the summoning of devils because it's bad and you don't do that. But black gives good reasons for the remaining legality of it. And Catherine's response? They still have to cause a costly amount of damage when they go crazy. I replied, curiously, why don't you just ban it entirely? It would save resources in the long term. She's very capable of a cool-headed policy debate on something she accurately finds repugnant. So we see that about her, too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is this whole conversation is interesting for what it reveals about the the characters. And it also gives us some interesting looks into militia and Tracy in general, because Kat talks about something about banning it, and there's a discussion about how actually making deals with devils disqualifies mages from entering the legions. And Black talks about how there'd be no practical way to enforce the ban, and he says, why? what would be the consequences of doing this? Kat takes a moment to think about it and comes up with an erosion of imperial authority, because you wouldn't be able to fully enforce it, and so that looks weak. And I also have to say, it also seems like it would be impractical for another reason in that you are going after and punishing any half-decent warlock. It's to, That's what the phrasing that Black uses, any half-decent warlock can do this. It seems like that's the kind of person that you don't want to constantly be punishing for the uh, for an empire that builds itself on having very capable mages of various varieties. There's there's a few layers here that are <laughs> really tell you how how imminently practical black and militia and all of the calamities are in a, something like you'd mentioned as awful as infernomancy I guess diabolism I didn't want to use that specific word that's a specific oh, thing then I'll cut that also infernomancy is a goofy word I like it a lot 
we're very serious here. Sorry, okay, not this whole thing then. Get on message. <laughs> Absolutely. But he wants the Empire to appear able to punish transgression. Because, he says, the myth of imperial omnipotence is what keeps praise together. Which I'm not going to particularly argue against, because people would move against militia if they thought they could. But praise is also founded on the premise that anyone can seize the tower. Not inherit, but seize the tower, if they merely have the merit. Imperial omnipotence maintains the land in the intra-regnum, but the trans-regnum insists upon there being flaws in the imperial authority, which itself thereby shores up the omnipotence of the imperial throne, because if you can defeat militia, well, you're better than militia. But no one else was better than militia, so who could be better than you, who is better than militia? I find it to be an interesting interplay between strength and weakness of the tower that makes Price what it is. There's, I mean, I agree, but there's also the level of that's exactly what causes the constant shift to the the fact that the new emperor takes control. Price is held together by imperial omnipotence, the myth thereof at least, but the inner workings, the people who most are aware of how things work, understand that it is a myth and have to and and take control when that myth is revealed and is broken. Oh, the Dread Emperor doesn't seem perfectly powerful anymore. Maybe I could step in to that role. Maybe I could usurp them. Usurp doesn't feel like the right word when it's built into how the government works, huh? When I, So I could step in to <laughs> take power. But the imperial authority, the tower is invincible. The tower is enduring. And I, yeah, that is, that's what's important. That's what, that's what keeps Price as a political entity functioning. So you've made a very insightful comment. The tower is the center of Price. Catherine can make comments on that level. When Black summons their ride, which is just a horrible thing, a death drake monster grossness. Mm-hmm. Catherine notes something that I think fundamentally shifts our perspective of this world. Speaking to Black, she says, you're a bad man, a bad, bad man. Let's keep that in mind. Let's keep an eye out for that as we keep reading. <laughs> there it is. Good call. Yeah, I, this, this is important. This is foundational. It's foundation, foundation shaking. You're right. So I, I'm glad you called attention to that. It had to come up. When they are mounting up on these sawtooth drake bat things how did you know they're a scientific name <laughs> uh captain mentions a, a little anecdote about another noble getting bitten eh, there's a whole story here she mentions that black spoke to one of these beasts in the dark tongue that's not a term we've seen before right i have never heard of the dark tongue i don't know who she is and i would like to learn her it's also not one I recall seeing again. I, I, I'm wondering if this is like the language specifically for these monsters, if it's the language used by certain beasts of praise. Is it just like a fun a fun way to refer to Mitsin? I don't know. There's it, the dark tongue. I mean, listen, this is Practical Guide to Evil. We're in a generic fantasy setting intentionally, not as a criticism. There's got to be a dark tongue, obviously. 
just it's interesting that it shows up here and we don't really see it again. Maybe. Maybe we do. But we do get a good joke out of it. Captain notes that Black told the beast to bite High Lord Nock in the Dark Tongue, or rather told it to take a bite. And the knight claims that his pronunciation was a little off. He was trying to tell it to take a hike. I assure you. That mistranslation typically doesn't result in slant rhymes in the original tongue. That's not how it works. If I told it to take a bite in German, I would say, Mein Co-Moderator spricht die Sprache nicht. And if I told it to take a bite, it would be a completely other sentence. Namely, also das ist ein Witz. Very different. And by that I mean, it is incredibly on point of black to make such a weak excuse. Good job, sir. I admire you. Then again, the dark tongue, after doing a bit of digging, seems to be just what devils speak. So maybe their language is such a mess that they just that rhymes work like that compared to all other languages. It that feels like that a devil thing. Absolutely diabolical. Very nice. Pun. Naturally, they mount up on these beasties to fly up to another floor of the tower, and Cat notes that Black climbs up too gracefully for a man wearing plate armor. I am. I know that we are <laughs> hitting on this every time it comes up. But Cat really needs to stop being surprised by what a martial-themed name can do in plate armor. Like, jokes aside, come on, Cat. Plate armor is just, like, clothing for him at this point. He's going to be able to move normally in it. But it did probably speed them on their flight up so that they were able to get to the party faster. Where they find an assortment of people. Overwhelming majority were humans. There are but a handful of orcs. And... And I think this is interesting. No goblins at all. I'm sorry. I think this is the only sensible choice. No goblins at all. Outside of if a matron chose to show up, which would be a whole thing. Can you imagine if they let those people in? I I don't mean to be at all negative, but what a glory. I mean, you say negative. I think if Kat afterwards was talking to Robber and said... Yeah, it's weird that there weren't any goblins there. He would respond, can you imagine if they let us people in there? So I think I think they're right on board with you. Yes, but they'd say it with more longing. <laughs> That's true. Not like a we're being left out kind of longing, but rather a, oh, we'd prove them so right kind of longing. Goblins are just little nasty boys all the way around, and they're the best for it. But we've heard enough of goblins. What I'm curious about is Catherine's experience. As Cat enters, she sees... The Dread Empress, and she thinks back about some attractive women she's seen in the past, because this is Catherine Foundling, and uh, you know the Baroness Dormer. We get we mentioned Eris, but we also get a Yante missionary, and I think that's interesting because we almost never hear about the Yante in any way whatsoever. They just don't come up, and here we have exactly one being mentioned and it's because she was astoundingly beautiful so nice job there cap but you know i I just like to point out when we see people groups mentioned who aren't colernian doesn't happen often but was this a religious proselyte because we don't see much of that they're very syncretic on colernia but the yante are not from colernia no but this is a glimpse into a type of religion we haven't seen in the guide that's, I, I just think it's cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it is interesting. I 
don't know if we get any more information about the Yante religion at all. But, uh, you know, if it comes up again, we'll talk about it. I bet you rubies to piglets, it does come up. Piglets is a fun choice of word because, of course, Kat is thinking of these historically beautiful women that she's seen in comparison to Dread Empress Militia. And in comparison to her, Kat says they might as well have been pigs. This is the person in the setting who is just beauty personified, I guess. And that's just who Militia is. That's not true. That's not who Militia is. That's one fact about her. There's much more to her, of course. But there's, you know, people are described as being basically flawless. And then there is Militia, who just outstrips every other human alive, apparently. We get some some description of her here. Um, uh, where is that? She was tall. Even with her sitting, I could see that much. But there was more to it than that. There were statues of ancient warrior queens in lore, and they'd been too perfect. Beautiful. But looking at them, you knew they were art and not a living thing. The Empress was breathtaking because she was so very alive, like a bonfire compared to everyone else's candle. It didn't matter that I didn't usually find sharp Sinike cheekbones like those on her face attractive. They were part of a whole that went beyond its separate parts. I couldn't pick out a single feature that made her beautiful, she just was. Her silk dress was a stream of green and gold that suggested the curves of her body without revealing them, leaving bare her long neck and curling down to caress smooth, dark calves. Black as sin, the legionary's song called her, and it was impossible not to think of something sinful when looking at her. Fluidly, with the easy grace of a hunting cat, she rose to her feet. So we get a nice description of the most beautiful person alive here, and it's... it's very cat it's a very cat description and next chapter she is routinely just rooted in place stunned by how attractive militia is other people are as well but cat specifically is because it's the first time she's seen her and unfortunately for her not the last but yeah it's impossible not to think of something sinful when looking at her remember catherine's ultimate goal and remember what one sin is this is a very deep line. Is it, though? No, she's just pretty. Yeah. No, that's, that's not even right. That's Catherine. She's sexy as all get out. Yeah. And who wouldn't feel that way when they look at her most dreadful majesty, Militia, first of her name, tyrant of dominions high and low, holder of the nine gates, sovereign of all she beholds. You know? What a list of titles, though. Most of those are just sort of what you'd expect. Holder of the nine gates. Yep, she's an otter. First of her name. Yep. She's Militia the First. The sovereign of all she beholds is powerful, though. Tyrant of dominions high and low. There's some There's some strength to these titles. Unsurprisingly, she's the Dread Empress. But they did well with these. And as befitting the sovereign of all she beholds, everybody in the room, almost, drops to their knees. With a couple of exceptions. And even though it's not the most notable exception, my favorite is they all drop to their knees. After a moment, Captain's armor creaked as she did the same, cloak pooling on the ground around her. She makes no physical claim that she does not kneel before the Empress or anything like that. She does kneel before the Empress, plain and simply. But she doesn't kneel right away. She's got a little something more to her than that. And I think it's nifty that she's sort of within Black's aegis. Oh, spoiler, Black isn't kneeling. Uh, within Black's aegis, but not 
immune to malicious power either so to speak i i think it's not like an actual game of magical metaphysical power but rather it's all politicking yeah i mean we get the next chapter black mentions that uh catherine gets some privileges just because she has a name and i don't even think that's this i think this is specifically being a calamity because we know that eris is in the room and there's no mention of her staying up a split second longer it's not merely everything names. would yeah. have been better for the continent if she had <laughs> honestly though man that would have been great but alas and but cat doesn't kneel she's about to because obviously but black catches her and says we do not kneel there's a whole paragraph about how powerful this line is because it's the black knight stating this in a room of crazy nobility and using the plural first person here she's he's including cat which is interesting by itself cat's already at the do not kneel stage as the squire captain's not even there as we just talked about eris isn't there but cat is she's had her name for what an hour it feels like and she's already at the, the level of the black knight when it comes to subservience to the empress that is a stance to be taking and a lot of things happen next chapter where there's politicking about where cat fits into the nobles this alone i feel like is such a power move for black to to bequeath upon catherine and a really interesting choice not for black necessarily it's important to him whatever he gets away he gets away with it because he took the tower which is not as militia in any way she is not lesser than black oh no but black is the military leader who despite her immense powers, would have been able to take it for himself. Militia, Militia took the tower. We get some details next chapter. Militia took the tower. Black kept the tower and didn't take it from her, like you said he could have. But to just give that to Catherine, he's a softy. <laughs> That's all it is. This is just sentiment. And so father and daughter stand there, the two of us clad in steel and black like a pair of crows. Aw. Hmm. Mm interesting but the empress does not strike them down dread empress militia smiled as she sashayed toward us just looking at the quirk of her lips made catherine's heart clench wrong part of her body so we can't count it for the clench counter but <laughs> it it is more of cat being just flabbergasted by attractive women and you know what honestly good for her but figure it out cat hey but this militia speaking as a homosexual man i have to say I think my heart would also clench. I've read the descriptions of her, and come on. Fair enough, fair enough. She is something special. But unfortunately, another special thing, this episode of the podcast, does have to come to an end. Join us next week on Podcast Guys, talking erratic errata, as we discuss... Patience. Poison. And promises. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. 
Music for the epigraph was Intro Melancholica by Deraz. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a P-G-T-E inspired RPG. We implore you don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, all with the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 21, Fall. Mm-hmm.